Absolutely. Twenty fourth, six p.m. Women's a.m. No, six p.m. Women's prayer group is going to start. I assume over here somewhere. Middle of the day. Ten. Ten. All right. So when Scott sent out a text, kind of getting the approval that to be off today, the first thing I do is cringe because I think. Am I going to have to be up here? But no. <laughs> You're fortunate enough I'm not. Mason Scroggins is coming up to give us the word. Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to say good morning. Our church has church at 2 p.m., and it's been very, very hard to get used to saying good afternoon. And it's especially hard when I come to a church in the morning and say good morning, and then sometimes I have to preach at my church and say good afternoon and continue to say good afternoon through the sermon. I always just say morning. It's good to be with you this morning. It really is. For some time, I've wanted to come and speak to you, not because I had any specific message burning on my heart or anything like that. I didn't think that you needed anything uh, per se. I just really love the people in this church. Many of them have become close to my own heart uh, through prayer and just ministry too. Scott's been close to me as I've um, got involved in ministry over the years. So it's good to be here with you and see some of your new faces. I I don't really know too many of you. I think pretty much everyone I have been close to skipped out on me this morning. They're not here, so I don't get to be with them, but I'm glad to be here with you all this morning. So for those of you who don't know me, I am Mason Scroggins. I am a husband. I'm a dad. I'm a field environmental scientist. I'm a seminarian. I'm a ruling elder. I'm a pastoral intern. I'm an itinerant preacher, and most importantly, and as always it seems, I'm running out of time. So let's get started with the sermon this morning. I believe you've already seen it's going to be in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at what Paul means when he says, look out for the dog. So if you would turn in your Bibles this morning, I'll be reading from the ESV. I believe that's what most of you all use. Am I correct? If not, I can make clarifications about any King James stuff. But uh, we're going to be in Philippians 3, 1 through 11. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning. Paul says to the church in Philippi, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count, or I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith. In Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. You've breathed it out by your Holy Spirit, it is inspired. And Lord, we ask this morning as we come and approach your text that you would inspire us by your inspired word, that you would speak to our minds and our hearts, all of our being. We pray that it would be attuned to your grace. We pray that you would speak clearly to us, convict us in our hearts of sin, point us to your son Jesus so that we might have his righteousness that comes through faith. And Lord, 
most importantly, we pray that your son Jesus would be glorified through this sermon. That my words would not just be my words, but truly that you would speak to this church through your word. That's what we want this morning. We want your son Jesus to be big. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, most of you are probably familiar with the gospel stories. There's many times where Jesus is going about in his ministry and a woman approaches him. This happens all the time. But there was a specific instance where a woman came to Jesus who was a Gentile. And Mark's gospel says that she was a Syrophoenician by birth. It's pointing out that she was a Gentile. She was different than the Jews. This lady had a demon-possessed daughter. Do you recall the story? She's coming to him saying, Jesus, help me. That's what Mark's gospel says that she said, or Matthew's gospel said simply that she said, Lord, help me. Now, if you've heard this story uh, before, you, you know the answer. But if you can't quite remember, you're probably thinking in your mind that Jesus said something to the effect of, go, be healed, or your, your daughter will be healed, or your faith is great, and so on. Something pretty compassionate, something pretty soft, something not so sharp. But that's not exactly what Jesus said. If you remember his response, it's actually quite jarring. He says, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Striking, isn't it? An emotionally distressed woman comes to Jesus with a demon-possessed daughter. Mothers, put yourself in those shoes. Imagine coming to Jesus Jesus saying, my daughter, she's demon-possessed. Lord, help me. And being called a dog. That's what Jesus does here. Now, as you know, this isn't some um, old cultural way of being nice to someone. This isn't some uh, weird kind of compliment he's given. We know that what he's doing right there, he's making a clear distinction of who she is and who he is. He says, you are a dog. That's what he's doing. And what is he referring to when he says the dogs? What is he talking about? Well, when he comes to her and says that, what he's making reference to is The dogs being the Gentiles, and the children being the Jews. Do you recall? Right? That's that's what's happening. He's making a clear distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. And this is just the pattern that Jesus makes. He's making a distinction between the two, clean and unclean. But this morning, what I want to look at is what is Paul talking about when he's talking about the dogs. That's what the text says. Look out for the dogs. Well, how are we going to look out for the dogs if we don't know who they are? We need to be able to identify the dogs. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at what Paul is talking about when he makes reference to the dogs. And this may make you give a a sigh of exhaustion, but we're going to talk about justification by faith alone. Um, I know you all have been in Romans, according to Scott. Is that right? You've been in Romans for quite a while, like two years, and you're probably thinking, oh, more justification by faith alone. Like, are you kidding me? We have a guest speaker, and he's talking about the same things we've been talking about. Well, yes, I'm going to talk about it. Kind of what Paul says, it's, it's uh, safe for you to hear the same things again, right? It's easy for me to say that, and it's safe for you. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to identify the dogs in this passage. And most importantly, I want you to see that knowing Christ Jesus means having a relationship that depends on faith. It depends on faith. It doesn't depend on works. And that might seem like something you all have down pat, but we often forget about it, don't we? We get in a pattern of life where we don't live by justification by faith alone. We know it in our heads But often we don't live it out, right? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you want to make an outline, I don't know if you guys are are note takers or outline people. I'm not a big outline guy, but I I give them because they tell me to do it in my homiletics classes. But there's three points that we'll look at in this sermon. We're going to identify the dogs. So number one, the identity of the dogs. Number two, the identity of what Paul calls the circumcision. And three, we're going to look at your identity. Who are you? Who are you in this story? When we read this passage, you need to be able to identify who you are and how you relate to Jesus in this story. So let's jump into the text in verse 1, chapter 3 of Philippians. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. As if to say, I know I'm always talking about this. I'm always talking about justification by faith alone. That's what it seems he's always talking about to this church, but it's safe for you. You don't need to feel like, well, I know the gospel, so I can move on now. right? We don't get that privilege, do we? Because if we're going to be gospel people, if we're going to be saved by grace and continue in grace, we have to have this refreshed on our minds all the time. We can't start with the gospel and then go on to something else, right? We are gospel-centered people at all times. So he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate 
the flesh. I'm going to ask you to turn back in your Bibles to Psalms 22, if you turn there with me quickly. This is going to help us understand more clearly what Paul is talking about when he says, look out for the dogs. If you read through the New Testament, you'll find that the writers of the New Testament are often using language of the Old Testament. That was their Bible. This is where they lived and breathed, especially the Psalter, the Psalms. They used this kind of language, and when they went there, and when they read their Bibles, they're learning to talk like the Psalms. They're praying through the Psalms. They're singing the Psalter. This is their hymn book. They lived and breathed in this book. So if we're going to better understand what Paul is talking about when he uses these phrases, we need to kind of look back and see where might he be borrowing language from. So we're going to be in Psalm 22. If you turn there with me, I want you to see this, if you don't mind, turning in your Bible so you can actually see it with me. Don't just take my word for it. Psalms 22, 16 says this. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. This is Psalms. This is not Philippians. This is Old Testament, not New Testament. Consider what was just said. Dogs encompass me, evildoers encircle me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now think about this. This is David saying this. This is not a New Testament person. They pierced my hands and feet. What is he talking about? He's talking about Christ. Could it be that he's talking about Christ? Now, obviously, I don't think David had in mind the crucifixion when he wrote this. When he wrote this, he was speaking proverbially about the oppressors that were coming around him. He's crying out to the Lord. That's what the psalms really are. Many of them are psalms of lament, some are of praise. There are all kinds of different psalms. But at the end of the day, he's talking about his experience. He's talking about this kind of oppression that is coming on his life. And David is crying out to the Lord saying, there's dogs all around me. There's evildoers all around me. They've pierced my hands. They've pierced my feet. And anyone up until Jesus would have been like, well, that's just kind of proverbial speech, isn't it? But then Jesus comes. Jesus comes and he actually does have his hands, does have his feet pierced. And it radically changes the way that we read the Old Testament when we see it in light of Jesus. That What Paul is doing here when he borrows this language from the Psalter is he's connecting the, the Old Testament Psalms, the Psalms of David, bringing them over to Jesus and saying, no, when you have this kind of thing around you, the dogs, the evildoers, the, what he would say, mutilators, the flesh, he takes a more general look at it. He's saying that you are being identified with Jesus. You are having the kind of oppressors come against you like Jesus did. The kind of people that pierce your hands and pierce your feet. But what he does is really interesting. He flips the identity on its head of what he's talking about with the dogs. Right? What he's doing here is dog, or Paul knows that dogs are a name for unclean animals. Right? If you know anything about the Bible, you know that dogs aren't clean animals. Pigs aren't clean animals. Those kind of things aren't clean animals. So he's using a, a dirty term, if you want to uh, use that kind of wording. He's using a ter- dirty term. And what he's doing is he's replacing a previously confusing passage about the crucifixion, about the piercing of the hands and the feet. The Jews wouldn't have been able to make much sense of this, right? This would have been confusing, or it just would have meant nothing at all. They would have just kept reading, well, he's just being really dramatic, right? Well, Paul takes this, and he makes it in a more general sense. He takes pierce my hands, pierce my feet, and he changes it to mutilators of the flesh. A lot more general kind of piercing, a lot more general kind of thing. And he makes it clear that the identity of the dogs are not unclean Gentiles, but Jews. He's talking about Jews, the people of God. So what he's doing is he's coming in like Jesus. Jesus comes in flipping tables. He comes into the temple. He says, this is your holy place. Well, I I think it's really a den of thieves. The holy place has become the unholy place. The clean people have become the unclean people. By what they're doing, where you're putting your faith, where you're putting your trust, you are making yourselves unholy. And what he's talking about specifically in this passage isn't just Jews. It's more specific than that. What he's talking about is the Judaizers. Are you all familiar with who the Judaizers are? When we read that in the New Testament, sometimes they're called the circumcision party. Who are these people, the Judaizers? There's a difference between the Jews and the Judaizers. The Judaizers are the followers of Jesus who require full observance to the Jewish law in order to be part of the worshiping community. To be in, you have to have Jesus plus all the Old Testament law. Right? You can kind of familiarize with many of the stories where these people are kind of coming in and saying, no, 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 you've got to be circumcised too. And Paul takes this very seriously, and you guys should take this very seriously about what Paul is talking about when he's talking about circumcision and that kind of thing. Right? So this is a big deal if you're a Jew or a Gentile. And this, this, has, this has implications if you are catching what I'm saying. When someone comes in and says, to be a follower of Jesus, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised. That's, that's kind of a radical statement, is it not? 
And that's why Paul's very serious about getting this right. You need to get this formula right. So what he's saying here is that the tables have turned, it's been flipped, and the circumcision has now become the uncircumcision. That's what you've done. By putting your faith and your confidence in that cutting off act, and I don't want to get too vivid here, but this is the Bible, guys. This is what we're talking about, circumcision. That cutting off, you're saying you're cutting off that uncleanliness. When you do that and you're putting your faith in that act of cutting off in the flesh, when you're saying, I am justified because I've done this, you're actually becoming the uncircumcision. You're becoming the clean. Rather than cutting off the clean or cutting off the unclean and throwing that away, there's actually a flip that's happened. You actually are the unclean part taken off. Right? So that's what Paul is getting at here. He's, he's using really strong language, coming in and telling these Judaizers, you guys are dogs. You are the unclean people. You are the evildoers. You are the mutilators of the flesh. Now, we've, we've said all this. We've identified that these are the Judaizers. We've identified that they're a Jewish kind of people. But what about Paul? Wasn't Paul a Jew? What does Paul think of the Jewish religion? Remember, he's come in. He, he was a Pharisee, and he's come in. He's believed in Jesus. Now, what does he think about his past life? What is he saying here? He says, well, if you want to play that game, if you want to go there, Judaizers, if anyone's going to win in this game, it's me. If anyone has confidence in the flesh, I have more. I've got you guys all beat, is what he's saying. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. Right? You can remember the Pharisees. Those were the really, really religious people, the highly respected, the ones that are going kind of through the streets, saying the prayers, the super holy people. He's saying, I was that guy. I was that guy in the streets. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I was there when we were stoning Stephen. We killed the guy. I was super zealous. Right? That's what Paul looks at as he looks back at his life. And when he says, and righteousness, and this is a big one, as to righteousness, when everyone looked at my life and what they thought about me if I was righteous, he said, I was blameless. You had no dirt on me. You had nothing on me. So that's what he looks at when he looks back. He really says, that old life I really kind of did, if we're going to play this game, I did have a righteousness of my own. But I don't want that anymore. There's something better. He's willing to trade that. As we talk about these kind of things, about the Jews, about the Judaizers, about circumcision, all that, you're probably thinking, what in the world does this have to do with me? Like, I don't even know a Jew. We're in North City, Illinois. I don't know any Jewish synagogue around here. I don't know any Judaizer. I don't know anyone that comes into the church who says that you have to be saved or you have to be circumcised to be saved. It's Jesus plus something. So I'd like to ask you this morning, as you read this passage, do you get this feeling that all the dogs are already dead? That there is no really connection to this passage this morning? Are we beating a dead dog, as they say? Right? You've heard the, the, the saying before, are we just beating a dead horse? Is this horse already dead and we're just beating and, and, and we need to just move on? Or are there still dogs alive in the church today? Ask yourself that. Think about that. Think of what you might think of in today's terms of a dog. Because I'd like to tell you this morning that the dogs are alive and well. They're not all dead. They're not all gone. I'm not talking about the Judaizers. There's different forms of this. I'd like to talk to you this morning about two kinds of dogs. I'd like to talk to you about cultural dogs, and I'd like to talk to you about church dogs. We have these two kind of, kinds of people that like to come and put extra restraints on us. Right? So the religion of our day, our culture, is really religious. They're not going to say that. They're going, to, they're going to be the people that fight above everyone else. We are not religious. We have no religion. We want no religion at all. But our culture, do they not have a religion? Right? There's certain things that you have to do to be a part of the cool group. Right? To be in with our culture, you have to have cultural cred. Do you not? Like, you can't just jump into our culture and hate everything that they hate. You have to get on board. You have to celebrate what they celebrate. You have to agree with what they agree with. You have to be woke. You have to be all the different things that our culture is saying is great, to be accepted, to be justified, to be counted as righteous, to be brought in, you have to do these things. And if you don't, well, you're a bigot. If you don't, you're going to be ostracized. You're going to be pushed out. You're going to be oppressed. Kind of like David was oppressed. You'll be encircled by people. You'll have a group of people jumping on you on Facebook. Look at this guy. Look how awful he is. When you make a stand for Jesus, just making simple statements will get the world to turn against you very quickly. 
So we have these people that kind of come down to it or come to us and they're just really pressing in. And the reality is, is if you don't comply, you're going to receive the same kind of treatment that Jesus did. Jesus had his oppressors. Jesus had his people against him. And it was in a lot more radical way. I'm not saying that we're actually going to get crucified, but there is a real sense in which we might be culturally crucified, right? You'll get canceled. If you, if you make that stand, if you make that stand for Jesus, saying, I'm about Jesus, you'll get, you'll get shut down. You'll get pushed out. But here's the beautiful thing about this, this passage and um, what we're looking at today, the cultural dogs and the church dogs. Who were the two people in Jesus' day that gave him the most flack. It was the Romans, the cultural people of the day, and the church, the Jews. Those were the people, those were the two people that conspired together and crucified him. And those are the same kind of people that we have to watch out for today. The dogs are alive and well. The culture is against you in many ways if you're going to make a stand for Jesus. And many times the church is as well. There's a religion of the church that is going to try to press against you. That They don't understand exactly what the message of Jesus is, what the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus is. They don't get it. But what you need to remember is that God calls you as a sinner. You've got to get this right. God calls you as a sinner and sent his son to die for you as you were a sinner. I want you to get that. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. And that's actually what Jesus is after. He's after the sinner. He is a friend of sinners. He loved you in your mess, and he redeemed you. He didn't say clean yourself up. He didn't say you have to get on board and do everything right, and then you can come in. He came to you as you were. And that's the the gospel difference of what I'm getting at this morning. I'm going to be fighting vehemently against legalism, and I'll define that in a minute and what I mean by legalism. But what you need to get this morning is that we are a gospel people. We're people after Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And what separates us from them, the dogs from the children, is having that gospel straight. That's why Scott's been really drilling in you, Romans, after two years. I hope that it's going well, but I'd like to tell you this morning, don't get used to it. Like, don't think that you've just got it. Like, oh, I understand the gospel, let's move on. I want you to be able to be a gospel people that are constantly thinking justification by faith alone. When I wake up in the morning, how do I walk that out? That doctrine is really important. Now, the other kind of dog, we've looked a little bit at the church dogs, but I'd like to look closer. Here's the interesting thing about the church. The church is the safest, it might make you feel the safest, I should say, the safest and most dangerous place to be bitten by a dog. Is it not? It's the place where people say, oh, you're a sinner, come on in, come on in, you can have grace. But then you get in for a month, you accept Jesus, and you, then you backslide a little bit. Oh, get out of here. You can't be doing that. Right? You, they, we call them in. We say, oh, we want the sinners. We want the sinners. But then when we stumble up a little bit, it's like, well, you're not, justification, or you're not justified by faith. You need to make sure that you're keeping up your works. You have to do all this. You have to do all that. And legalism can really slip in quickly. When we're calling in these people, we need to be careful that we're not changing our gospel when a little bit of slip-up happens. We're still coming to these people with the gospel, not coming with, well, you better get your work straightened out because I don't know if you're really a Christian or not. Right? We, we feed them to the gospel, the gospel. And this is what happened to the Galatians. You remember when Paul went to the church in Galatia? What did he say? I'm astonished how quickly you've moved on to another gospel. But that gospel is really no gospel at all, he says, if you remember. He said, there is no other gospel. There's one gospel. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Have you begun by the Spirit? Have you been thinking that you've begun by the Spirit? Will you now be perfected by the flesh? So that's what Paul's getting at. He wants you to understand this gospel and its implications. Everywhere he's going, he's saying the same thing over and over again. And we can kind of just read over it. Oh yeah, there's justification by faith again. No, don't forget it because you can easily slip up into it. So, what is it the slipping up into that I'm talking about? It's talking about slipping into legalism, but I haven't defined that yet. And this word gets thrown around, and I think people have a misunderstanding, really, of what legalism is. Legalism isn't just those really conservative Christians. That's not legalism. You can still be conservative and not a legalist. Legalism is the direct, and if you want to write this down, you can. It's kind of a definition that I tweaked a little bit and worked with, but I think it's a good definition. It's the direct or indirect attachment of behaviors disciplines or practices to faith in order to achieve salvation and right standing with God. So basically, faith plus something equals salvation. 
Faith plus your obedience, faith plus your works, plus anything is a problem. That's where legalism steps in. I'll say that definition again and kind of change the wording to maybe help you understand it. It's the indirect or direct, so intentional or unintentional, whether we mean it or not, attachment of behaviors, so your works, disciplines or practices, these things you do to faith in order to achieve salvation. Now this is really easy to fall into. We think that we don't fall into it, but we do. Even Peter fell into it. Do you remember? In Galatians, Paul talks about having to call Peter aside. And I I say he called him aside. Actually, that's wrong. He didn't call him aside. He says, I had to do it publicly. Maybe we would think it'd be better. Well, Paul, you need to pull him aside and kind of quietly fix this. No. Paul shows up at this fellowship meal, and he sees that Peter had been sitting with the Gentiles, but then Judaizers showed up, and he said, ah, I better go over there with these guys. So what he did in this small little movement, switching from this table to this table, eating with the Gentiles to the Jews, Paul says, that's a gospel issue, Peter. Do you realize what you're doing? That, that small move from step, going from that table with the unclean people to the clean people, you just made a gospel mistake. We're talking justification by faith alone, Peter. Do you remember what we said? You are justified by faith alone, period. You don't have to be circumcised. To eat with those people is the same as to eat with those people because all these people who have put their faith in Christ are Christians. They are the people of God. So this issue isn't a secondary issue. Legalism isn't a small secondary issue. It is primary. It is about the gospel, and you need to get it straight. So that's what Paul is getting at this morning when he's saying, look out for the dogs because they're alive. They haven't died out. They're still here, and we still need to watch out for them. So there's many ways that the church does this. The religious people add requirements on to faith that are not in the Bible. And you can kind of see this, where other Christians guilt other Christians because they're not doing enough. How many souls have you led to the Lord this week? Oh, I don't know. I talked to my cousin a little bit, but uh, he's already kind of a Christian. I don't know. So you see these people. How many mission trips have you been on? Oh, I've actually never been on a mission trip. And you call yourself a Christian? I thought you were radical. I thought you were sold out for Jesus. And do you read your Bible every day? Well, the other day I did miss it. You forgot to read your Bible? Like all these extra things. And those are all good things. I'm not saying those are bad things. But we can make good things God things. And we make a good thing a God thing. We're adding something on that is not required. To be a Christian, you don't have to do this regimented pattern every week where you've got to save this person. You've got to read your Bible. You've got to do all this long list, and the list can just keep growing and growing and growing. Good works are a great thing. I hope that the Lord leads you to them. And hear me clearly this morning. I'm not saying that there are no works required in the life of a believer. James makes that clear. But what James is talking about is the difference between a lively faith and a dead faith. Because real faith works. But justification by faith alone, when God looks at you, he doesn't require anything but faith. That's what you need to get. He doesn't say you need faith and you need this big old pile of works to say, okay, God, I believe over here, but I also got all this stuff too. Right? That's not what he's saying. And there's many times in the church where we try to add these things on. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's drink. Right? It comes up in all different kinds of ways. This is the church that doesn't drink this or drink that. This is the church that doesn't eat that, or eat that, or smoke this, or smoke that, or whatever it is. Like, we put all these extra things on, and we think that the church needs a new FDA. We need a food and a drug administration to make sure that we're keeping all the requirements to become a real Christian. But that's legalism. That's letting things creep into the gospel, where God doesn't say you can't do those things. Paul makes that very clear in Romans 14. I don't think, have you guys got there yet, Romans 14? You'll get there in like three years. It's a really good passage. Paul talks about, where Christians are, he says, let me get the wording right, I'll have to look at my notes. He says that um, some Christians, maybe I don't have it in my notes, anyway, in Romans 14, he says, will you, um, will you destroy the one for whom Christ died by asserting your liberty? Essentially, that's what he says, you'll have to go and look at it. But anyway, will you destroy the one for whom Christ died to assert your liberty, or to assert your law where God allows liberty? Because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, it's not food and drink, but of Joy, peace, and the Holy Spirit of righteousness, he says. That's what the gospel is about. That's what the kingdom of God is about. So let's quit talking so much about all the little things that hang us up. Maybe, you aren't, maybe your conscience isn't clear to do that. But don't make your conscience someone else's conscience, right? 
That's where legalism really steps up. Is where you say, I'm kind of convicted about that. I don't want to do that because the line is right here. And I know if I stay here, if I fall, then I'm not going to fall over the line. Good, great, do that. But when you start saying, all right, the new line is here. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I think that's a good practice as individuals. If you know yourself, then you're probably going to put yourself right here when you think that you're really susceptible to falling over the line. But when we say, no, here's the new line, everyone, that's when we fall into legalism. So look out for the dogs. Look out for those people. What we need to realize, though, is that what makes Christianity unique, what makes the church different, is that this gospel has God accepting sinners as sinners, but not on the basis of being a sinner. That's what separates us from the dogs. We're saying, come in, period. If you believe, come in. When you're weak, come in. When you're a sinner, come in. When the drunk guy comes in that back door, stinking awfully of alcohol, half hungover, say, come in, come in. I have good news for you. I have good news for you. Not, oh man, you're pretty stinky. Uh, you're half hungover. You're not going to understand half the message anyway. Let's get out of here. Come on. You're going to just disturb these good, holy people in here. No, we need to be a church that's like Jesus, a friend of sinners. How many churches can you think of? When, when you think of being a friend of sinners, how many churches, when you close your eyes and think of all the churches around it, even in your own church, I don't know if I can even say this about my own church, how many churches can you think of that you think, that's a church that is a friend of sinners? I can think of a couple people like that. I want to be a person like that. I want my church to be like that. I want your church to be like that. I want all churches to be like that. To be ready, like Jesus, to welcome people in, to go to the ugly the unclean, the sick. That's what Jesus did. He went to the lepers. The Jews are saying, no, 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 don't, don't touch him. Don't touch him. And Jesus what? Touches him. That's what he's always doing. He's always kind of going and crossing those lines where everyone's saying, don't go, don't do that. You're going to have to do this. And he's like, no, actually, when I touched him, he became clean. When I touched him, something changed on his part. And that's what it is with the gospel. When we get to touch these people with the good news of the gospel, these really dirty people, it's amazing. It's the power of God unto salvation. They become saved. From faith for faith. When you share that good news with people, the change happens a lot of times on their part. You don't get defiled because you start hanging out with the drunk in town. Right? That's the good news of the gospel. That's what separates this from all other religions. The other religions want to clean yourself up. Right? Get yourself good and tidy. Come on in. Do this. And if you do that, then there's this regimen to get yourself clean again. But no, the gospel is the good news that anyone... Anyone, whoever believes, if you come in here, doesn't matter where you're at, what you've just done, if you put your faith in this good news, you will be saved. How? You guys know the gospel this morning. How can, how can we be saved? Does Jesus say, all right, uh, I like you, we're good. Is that all that it takes? No, there was blood that had to be spilt. Right? Jesus gave his life for us. He died the death that we deserve. He died because that man or that woman that came in did sin. They did break the law. And when we break the law, we deserve death. And he died that death. But why is this good news? Why can we all say that's amazing when we think about the gospel? Is it that Jesus died? It's the resurrection. The resurrection is the really amazing part that distinguishes this from everything else. That you're going to die, I'm going to die, we're all going to die. But guess what? Jesus died and he killed death. He overcame death. And what Paul means in this passage when he says that we might know him and the power of his resurrection, that means understanding that we get to participate in that too. That when you put your faith in Jesus, you get eternal life. You get to come back from the dead. You get that great power of resurrection that Jesus had. It is yours. So, maybe I am starting to be a dead dog now. We'll move on away from the dogs and try to look at the identity of the circumcision. But, just to have it clear in your mind that the dogs are the legalistic people of our day. They're the ones that are putting extra regulations on the people of God, and you need to watch out for them. But who are the circumcision in this passage? What's Paul talking about when he says, we are the circumcision? Verse 3, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, and so on. Notice that he says we. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the church in Philippi. Is this a Jewish church? No. Think about what he just said again. We are the circumcision. A bunch of people out there that aren't circumcised, he says, we are the circumcision. Uh, Paul, he's been circumcised. He can say that. But he's looking to a bunch of Greco-Roman Gentiles 
who have not been circumcised. And he says, you are, we are the circumcision. We're all Gentiles here today, I think. Are there any Jews in the room? Just so I'm not... Okay, I didn't think that there were. We're in North City. I didn't expect that there would be. Um, So what Paul is saying is that we are the circumcision somehow. We are the people that worship by the Spirit of God, he says in verse 3. And when he says that we worship by the Spirit of God, think of John 4 when he meets the Samaritan woman. He says, no longer are we going to worship on the hill. We're not going to worship here or there. We're going to worship in spirit and in truth. So the contrast of worshiping in the Spirit by the Spirit of God is to the letter and the law. Right? There was a way of worshiping through the law, but what does Paul say about the law? The law kills, but the Spirit gives life. What does he mean? He means that when you try to live by that law, when you're trying to keep it up, keep the Ten Commandments every day, you're going to fail. It's going to be the end of you. The way to live, to truly have life, to make progress and move forward, is to understand the good news of the gospel and live by the Spirit. To live that power of the resurrection that Jesus says that you can have. We are a people, it says in verse 3, that glory in Christ Jesus. We're not glorying in our circumcision or any works that we've done, anything that we have. We count them as rubbish. It's all out of the picture. We put no confidence in the flesh. This goes for other things too, like baptism. Right? Don't think that you're fine with God just because you've been baptized. You must believe. You must repent and believe. So put no confidence in anything that you've done. Anytime you put confidence in something or some action that you've done, and you're thinking about justification, you're slipping into it. Better watch out. We are people justified by faith alone. We have no confidence in the flesh. So what does Paul think about this side of the fence? So he's lived on the Jewish side. Paul's lived as a Jew. But now he says he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's lived on both sides. But what does he look at when he looks back at his, his Jewish life? Does he say, well, that's, that's pretty great. I'm trying to maintain that. I'm trying to keep all that up. It's been really great. It's worked so far. No. It's actually not at all what he says. He says, whatever gain I had, all the religious gain, all the church gain, all the great leadership I had, I was going to all the conferences. I kind of always lost. Throw it out. It's rubbish. It's trash. It means nothing to me. And we need to be ready to say that same thing as the circumcision, the true people of God. Whatever gain I might have had, whether cultural, cultural credit, the kind of status that you might have in our culture, be ready to make that stand. And when you make that stand, be ready for it to all crumble away. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. My Lord, your Lord, our Lord. It's better. It's, it's completely better. It makes Paul say of, of his past life, I count it all as trash, as rubbish. That's strong language to consider what he's saying. He was prestigious in his day. It would be like a, a megachurch pastor that has tons and tons of people following, following him. Saying, this guy's awesome. They're reading all his books and doing all this. And he learns about the true gospel, Jesus. And he says, actually, I'll throw all that out just for knowing Jesus. I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to do it. That's Paul. And we need to be ready to do the same thing. We need to be ready to suffer a loss of all things, to count them as rubbish. And he gives us a qualifier in verse 8. What qualifies us in verse 8? It's right before you get to verse 9. It says, in order that I may gain Christ, you have to do these things. He says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that, so there's the qualifier, in order that I may gain Christ. So how do you gain Christ? Count it all as rubbish. Otherwise, you don't get both. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You have to count all of Christ as worthy or as the greatest worth or you have to count all of that as the greatest worth which one is it pick one paul says which one is it that's the qualifier count it all as rubbish so he says that to have on this side to gain christ and be found in him you must count all things as rubbish not having a righteousness of your own so he's going to make this contrast here not having the righteousness of your own that comes through the law but the righteousness from god that comes through faith you understand that this morning there's a difference between those two things. One is salvation by works, essentially. The other is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Nothing added to it. No works. When you get to heaven, you don't get to say, I have this and that. You get nothing in your hands. You've got to pick one, Paul says. That you might know him and the power of his resurrection. And notice what it doesn't say when it says, know him. Being found in him and to know him. What does that mean? Sometimes it's best to describe what it doesn't say. 
to understand what it does say. It doesn't say that I might know about him. Right? It's not theology. It's not all the books you know. It's not all the things you can understand. It's a relationship. It's not just this formula. It's not justification by faith, the formula. It's understanding in it your mind and your heart, your soul. Having it sink down into your bones. What justification by faith means is the, the difference between a relationship or no relationship. There are theologians out there that can get this formula down like, pat, they, they got it. But they don't have a relationship. They don't know what it means to know him and the power of his resurrection. That's the difference. It doesn't say no about him. Know him. That by any means possible, even if it means becoming like him in his death. We're not there yet as a culture. You're not going to get crucified, I don't think, for standing up for Jesus, for making a, a gospel statement. But there was a time when that happened. There was a time when many Christians were being killed for their faith. And it might come soon. I don't know. But what Paul is saying is that you've got to be ready to go there. You've got to be ready to count everything as loss, becoming like him, even if it means becoming like him in his death, by any means possible that you might attain the resurrection. Don't cave in that moment. When you have that opportunity to speak truth, to say what you should be saying, don't cave in that moment. When the dogs encompass you, the evildoers are all around you, the legalists are saying, you have to do this, you have to do that. Culture is pressing in. The church might even be pressing in. The church and the, the, the uh, culture, many times, they're in bed together. And when that moment comes, when you feel like the whole world is against you, you need to be able to make that stand to say, no, I believe in the gospel. So that gets us, like I said, to the last question. Who are you in this story? We've identified the dogs, we've identified the circumcision, the true people of God. Paul says that those who are the circumcision are the true Jews. I think you've been there already in Romans 9. The Christians, the people of God, that really believe they're the true Jews. They're the sons of Abraham. Galatians, Paul says in Galatians that we are the Israel of God. He's using all this language of the people of God. And he says this to Jews and Gentiles. But who are you? Who are you in this story? That's what it really boils down to. What is your worth? What is your value? Where does your righteousness come from? When you look at your own life, do you start thinking of all the stuff you've done? Do you start thinking of how you've lived or haven't lived up to some standard? Because if you have, what I'd like to tell you this morning is you need to allow that standard to kill you. And you're kind of thinking, what do you mean by that? The Spirit gives life, but the letter kills. The whole purpose of the law, Paul says in Galatians, is that it was a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. How does a law lead us to Christ? Think about that. When we look at the law, the whole purpose is for us to realize that we can't do it. It's the end of you. The letter, you need to allow it to kill you. The law, you need to allow it to kill you. Why? Because you can't do that, and you have to die and live with Christ. Right? That's the whole purpose of the gospel. Is when Paul looked at the law, he used to say, you know what, I think I got those ten right. And then he met Jesus, this guy who says, actually, Paul, I know you said you didn't murder have you ever hated someone in your heart? Have you done that? Oh, yeah, I've done that. But I mean, I didn't really kill anyone. Jesus says, no, no, no. You've broken that law. Well, I haven't cheated on my wife. I haven't done this. I haven't committed adultery. Well, have you looked at a woman lustfully? You know, I did. Couldn't do that. So Jesus views the law rightly. So when we look to Jesus, we need to look at the law like he does. He didn't change the law. He, didn't say, he said specifically, I come not to abolish the law, but to... Keep the law, to uphold the law. And when you look at the law rightly, Jesus gives us the right interpretation, which is we are sinners. It's the end of us. And what it does, that law leads us as a, as a schoolmaster to Christ. It makes us not looking to ourselves. When we look at that, we say, I've got nothing. I, I really, I haven't lived up to it at all. I need to look somewhere else. And it leads us to Christ by saying, where am I going to look? Where else will we go? And there's Jesus standing, welcoming the sinner. That's what we see when we read the Bible. This great gospel is Jesus going around to all these ugly, nasty sinners like us and saying, I'll take you. I'll die for you. I'll do it. I will die the death that you should have died because you broke that law. And when you do that, when you place your faith in Jesus, it will radically change your life. When you have this gospel formula like Paul does where you're putting it all, all your eggs 
in the basket of Christ's righteousness, it makes a huge difference. Now, Paul doesn't hold on to anything. He doesn't have uh, one basket over here of Christ's righteousness, and you put 99% in that, and you still have that 1%. But I believed, right? I had that faith. I, I gave that. Paul says, no, even the gift is, or even the faith is a gift, lest any man should boast. Throw that last egg over there. It's 100% Christ. Christ is the one that saves you. You don't even get credit for your faith. He says, I had done that. My love, I loved you before you loved me. Your faith is a gift of mine that I gave to you for my love for you. It changed your heart. You've come to me. So if you realize that this morning, the difference between a righteousness of your own and a righteousness through faith, has that clicked with you? I can remember very clearly the first day this clicked with me. I was about 18 years old. I grew up in the church. My dad's back there can testify that he raised me around the Bible. I was around the people of God. But that isn't enough. Sometimes we don't understand the gospel, even until our later adulthood. I was 18 years old before it really clicked with me. That's not to say that I didn't somehow have an elementary understanding, but it really snapped one day when I was at a youth conference, and a guy up there named Adam Ramsey was a group probably of 20 people. He drew two circles on a whiteboard. One circle said, the cycle of grief. The other circle said, the cycle of grace. And those two circles, and his explanation of those two circles, changed my life forever. When I realized that that cycle of grief was looking at the law and trying to live to that law, trying to keep all the stuff, trying to upkeep that, I realized that was the end of me. I can't do it. I've been trying to do it. And it makes real, a lot of sense now that I've been trying all this, all this time to do it and I can't. It's because I've been trying to do it the wrong way. For the believer, Christ is the end of the law, is what Romans says. You need to look to the cycle of grace where Christ has kept the law for you. That's the good news. And the righteousness that he has for keeping that law is yours through faith. That's how that gospel formula works. You get the righteousness of Christ. He who knew no sin became sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That great exchange. He takes our sin, we take his righteousness. It is almost too good to be true, but it is true. That's the good news of the gospel. So why does doctor, or the doctrine of justification matter? Why does justification by faith make Paul say crazy things like, you foolish Galatians, you dogs, who's bewitched you? If anyone believes another gospel, anathema. Like, why is he getting so worked up about this? Because it's a big, big deal. And you need to be able to take this home and apply it to your lives. Because this week, when you blow it, and you probably will, I'll blow it. We'll all blow it. When you really blow it, when you lose it with your kids, when you lose it with your spouse, when you say something that you shouldn't, and you're feeling awful about it, I don't want you in that moment to start thinking, well, yeah, I didn't live up to the law. Next time, no, that's not good news. The good news is that you are right with God on the basis of faith. That when we sin, we need this gospel even after we sin. That's not the time when someone really blows it to come say, you know what the Ten Commandments says. And you'll have those people that really, really blow it. And I want you to have a good gospel presentation for them when that happens. To show them the good news that there's hope even the moment after sin. Why? Why can the thief on the cross be with Jesus in paradise? Because he's not justified through works. He didn't have any time being strung up on a cross to do anything. He had nothing. He was at his end. Literally, he was at his death. It, it was his death. But he believed God. And when he believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. That is the good news, that no matter who you are, what you've just done, if it's your, at your very bottom or your very top, when you just got that promotion at work and you think things are awesome, everything's going great, you still need to remember the gospel, that that isn't where your worth comes from. That isn't where your acceptance by God comes from. It's not from being a good old boy. It's not being great at work or great at your job. It's having nothing in your hands coming to Christ looking to his righteousness. We glory in Christ Jesus is what this text says, not in man's works. So we never finished the story about the Gentile woman, did we? Kind of left her there hanging. She got called a dog. So what do we do with that? She was called a dog, but what was her response? Did she quit back? I'm no dog. Who do you think you are? Is that what she said? No, she didn't say that because she knew who she was. And she knew who he was. She knew that she was a dog. 
She knew that she was unclean. She knew that she was unworthy. She knew that she had nothing in her hands to bring. She didn't come saying, "Uh, Lord, I'll do this. I'll pay you this. I'll, I'll give you that. She simply came as someone in need. And so do we need to come to the Lord with nothing in our hands. Simply, Lord, help me. That needs to be our confession as we come before the Lord. Lord, help me. I have nothing. Now, we've talked about who the dogs were in the story. We've talked about who the children were, those of the Jews, the Gentiles. We haven't talked about one other element of this story. When you talk about that table, what's on the table? There's the bread. What's the bread? What is that? Well, it's not so much a what. It's a who. It's the bread of life. It's Jesus that she was after. That's that's what was on that table. That's what Paul was so worked up about when Peter fell into that. That was a gospel issue because they were having fellowship and there was a break there. And Paul wants you to see that Jew, Gentile, whoever you are, sinner, you come to the table, no matter who you are, and you come in faith, hungry, ready to take up that even little bit of Jesus. Whatever you can get, Jesus is better. There was nothing that this woman had to offer but her faith. And this is how we should approach Christ and his righteousness. And at the end of the day, when we're feeling like entitled children, we should remind ourselves that we are just unprofitable servants. That's how we come to the table. That's how we come to this table. When you guys come and have table fellowship, be ready to receive Christ with nothing in your hands. You let it all go. And we have that same kind of faith that says, as she did to her Lord, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs that fall from children. We need to be ready, like that woman who says, I'll take even a crumb of that bread of life that righteousness, because it's way better. It's far surpassing anything I could ever think of. That worth of that little bit of crumb of Jesus is better than anything I could ever conjure up. And when we have that profession like that woman did, with nothing in our hands, coming needy, I'm sure he will say the same thing that he said to her, saying, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for loving us even when we were sinners. And Lord, we come to you in faith today asking that whatever you have for us, we are ready to receive it. We will take even a crumb of what you have because your great worth far surpasses anything we could ever think of on our own. Any works that we have, Lord, we're ready to throw them all down just for that taste of you today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.